Anime Podcast. I'm your host, Larry Vasquez, and you're listening to episode 45. In this episode, we have animator and director Patrick Osborne joining us. Uh, Patrick has worked for such companies as Sony Animation and Walt Disney Animation Studios. While at those studios, he's worked on such films as Surf's Up, Tangled, and Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, just name a few there, but uh, probably what he's most notable for is his work on his shorts. He was an animation supervisor on Paperman and directed the much-loved uh, short Feast. He's recently released uh, his next short um, for Google Spotlights, Pearl. This is a very interesting short in his first foray out into the realm of VR. And so I'm very much looking forward to talking with him about his experience in animation as well as directing and directing in this new medium here. Um, so let's bring him on. How are you? Very well, thank you. How you doing? Good. Hey, thank you so much for meeting me on this here. I really appreciate the short notice too. No, no problem. I, sorry I didn't see, I guess I didn't have my audio turned on. All right, I was muted. I didn't hear the uh, friend request come through. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. Well, first, I usually like to jump into just kind of your background. I'm always interested in how people kind of get into the industry, where they learned or uh, how they kind of came up into it. So you kind of want to jump sure. into where you learned animation. Well, I am from Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, which isn't generally known as an animation capital or anything like that. <laughs> but um, my dad was director of design at Kenner Toys, which was in Cincinnati. Okay. Um, he was an industrial designer. And my parents met in art school. My mom was in school for fine arts and painting and um, photography. So very cool. Um, there's a little bit of creativity in my family. And yeah. he, he worked there through um, from the mid 70s through 1991, I believe, when Hasbro bought them and they left the city. So uh, through like Star Wars and Care Bears, Play-Doh, um, toys like that. Very cool. So I always had that around, and my dad drew a lot. He also did a lot of automotive stuff. Um, he went to the University of Cincinnati in industrial design, which is one of the still one of the bigger programs in the country, and uh, and it was really into racing. Indianapolis, the the speedway is nearby. It's about an hour and a half from our house, and that's uh, I think my dad. This is the hundredth running this year, and I think it's my dad's like forty seventh race. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so he still does that all the time. He's done the program cover for them a couple times, as well as other races like watercolor paintings. So, um, as a kid, I would draw with him a lot and the, you know, that, that was always kind of there. And then I got into Nintendo, um, you know, of our generation, I yep. think, um, I, I, I got the original Nintendo. I remember, I remember being really mad about buying Ice Climber instead of The Legend of Zelda. <laughs> oh, Zelda. Yeah. <laughs> they came out the same day. I, that was like a really vivid mistake <laughs> as a kid. Um, so did you ever get to play the original Zelda then? Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah. how, how long I mean, after? got it and I was like, yeah, I have to get this. Um, okay. you know, everybody, you know, my whole neighborhood was all Nintendo. All the kids my age, you know, we yeah. were about like six. It was out. And uh, then, so I got into games a lot. And my dad had a friend from Kenner that was into, that was an early uh, game guy. He worked with Electronic Arts, like, when it was, like, like in the early 90s, you know, when it had the three, it was a logo of, like, these three, um, a sphere, a cone, and a cube. Okay. I remember. But he worked on a couple really early games on the Nintendo, and... And I thought it was really cool that you could do that, that you could be a game designer. I didn't, that was like, oh, it's like another 
creative career. So I started like designing levels and characters and showing them to that guy, this guy, yeah. Ed Zobers. He ended up running, um, oh, what was the company out here? He ended up, he worked, he lives out here now in Manhattan beach and he, he ended up the CEO of like, uh, a massive game company. I just forget which one it was. Um, so I kind of wanted to do that, you know, as a kid going into high school and then, um, Kenner had alias. I remember my dad had, um, he showed me really early 3D modeling tools in like 1988. Um, cause Kenner had like a huge alias system that they were trying out for toys making. And that's pretty unique because at that time it was still pretty expensive software, right? It was, yeah, it was like, it was probably like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so for you to have they access to that, one. they had one. And I remember just playing with it very, like, there was a little demo where you had your mouse and a spider would like follow it. And that was, it was a 3D spider. And then, uh, and then 3D games started coming out like, um, Star Fox blew my mind a little bit. And, um, so getting into all that stuff, I kind of like, I kind of started dabbling in the computer stuff, convincing my parents to buy a Mac, like a really early, uh, Performa. I remember getting a pirated version of Ray Dream <laughs> Studio and playing with that. I don't know exactly how I got it. You know, it, back then we were on bulletin boards and you could trade stuff around on BBS systems. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is probably like 91 and, uh, or 92 maybe and started playing with modeling in 3D. I remember the first time that I like moved two spheres and they went through each other and like they didn't know to touch. Um, like there wasn't like an active sim and it was uh-huh. really disappointing. <laughs> That that wasn't automatic. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a lot harder than it was going to be. Which I imagine people still have that experience now who yeah. don't know. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, started making little 3D animations in high school for various projects, whatever I could do, you know, in art class. And my teacher was really great, uh, Ted Meckley, who still teaches it. I went to St. Xavier, a Jesuit boys school in Cincinnati. And, um, the teacher, Teddy Meckley, there still teaches art there. And Mrs. Marianne Meyer, who no longer teaches there, I think she's retired, but they knew about, uh, they knew about art colleges, which were, were good. They knew about, uh, SBA and NYU and Ringling and Savannah and CalArts and sort of encouraged me to try out these new programs that were, you know, programs that at each of the schools for computer animation were usually like three or four years old at, mm-hmm. at most. Yeah. It wasn't like everywhere, but, um, I knew Ringling had a, uh, a teacher named Maria, um, who wasn't there when I went, but she, she ended up at Ohio State for a long time. I think she's still there. That is, that was like a really a pioneer in this world. And, um, and some of those people from Ohio State went to Blue Sky. And so there was kind of like, there was, there was a little bit of this type of community in Cincinnati and in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, it was enough to know about it. Like people kind of knew. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, I got rejected from CalArts. I got rejected from NYU. I think I got into Loyola, but I thought it was probably because it was a Jesuit school and it doesn't really have animation <laughs> anyway. And I got into Ringling and Savannah and a couple other art schools. And, um, and you know, CalArts is like, try again next year. I'm like, no, I kind of want to go to school now. So I went to Ringling and, um, it was a weird time in the animation business. I I graduated high school in 99 and it was basically at the death of 2D, like right then mm-hmm. much uh, like Disney 
Well, a lot of people that taught at Ringling um, had left the Florida studio at Disney when they closed, like the okay. year before that, years before that. So there was a lot of great teachers there. Uh, Deborah Healy was a trainer at, at the old Florida studio, I think, and she was my 2D animation teacher when I first started at Ringling. And um, she was amazing. And just to have, like, some of that there. But Deborah, even though she was a 2D animation teacher, she's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do 2D animation professionally. Like, right then, no one who was smart would tell you, you know, no one knew anything would tell you to learn 2D right. in 1990. It seemed like a crazy thing because yeah. <laughs> Pixar was taking off and um, and 2D was clearly like contracting majorly. And the only people that could do it were really, really great and had done it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So um, so I started at Ringling and I um, really loved it. The, the, the animation class had 40 people and um, they were all really into it. Uh, we made like short films like the first week. We hadn't had anything to do, so we started making like live action movies. We still have them around, or a few of them. Uh, and some of those friends, like the, the, a guy, Ian Bronner, that I met the first day of, of school, worked on Pearl. Like, I still, no way. still know them really well. Chris Cordingly is another animator. He lives a dorm across the hall from me. He's really fantastic. He works at Disney right now still. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Ryland Davies was his roommate. Ryland works at Riot. Um, so like our little chunk of the hallway is pretty still all, most of them are in the industry. Uh, Chris Rogers is in there. He was, he was at Rhythm Hughes a long time and now he is at DreamWorks as a CG soup. And I think Ian Olson is another one that's in that hall and he works in Dallas at a game company. Uh, so everybody like did pretty well in a little <laughs> cluster. Uh, and some of the other ones were illustrators and stuff, and they're pretty. They're, they have their own successful path at places like Hallmark. But um, because the school was really small at that time, in the class, you know, forty people in a class, you all knew each other pretty well and worked pretty tight. Mm-hmm. It was kind of it was neat that like this, this the facility was great. Um, kind of Maya two point five, I think, was the first one we started on, and um, it had just gotten blend shapes. I think that was the new thing. <laughs> Which is funny to think about, but I didn't really yeah. know like what was good what or bad. Yeah, yeah. There, starting a ball bounce. And my teacher was Ed Gavin, and he was at Blue Sky, worked on Bunny, that short there, and then he um, like way like the short was like in like ninety. Yeah, yeah. Remember going um, through like an oven or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It was really famous then, and um, and he was a fantastic teacher. You know, he, he moved to Florida and wanted to teach and Jim McCampbell ran the department and he's still there running the department and um, he's wonderful too. So it was really, it was only a few teachers though because there wasn't much of a class. So we had 15 kids in a class and, um, you know, CalArts and Ringling are pretty different in the amount of films you make. And I, I taught at CalArts um, last year or two years ago now. And I love the one film a year thing, but there is something cool also about like all, your whole college career pointing at this one thesis film. There's something kind of fun about that. So, so that Ringling uh, had more of a, a focused, uh, limited films like versus CalArts where you have multiple or am I getting that reversed? Yeah. CalArts, you make a film every year okay. and you kind of scramble at it and you learn by like sort of a rushed failure. Okay. Um, and then you have time to reset and, it's not, you know, there's there's different there's advantages to each one. Ringling, you do one film, so you really put a lot of pressure on yourself for that film, which I think is not um, it's not 
there's good and bad. At least at Ringling, you have time to practice your animation skill and practice your lighting, and you can get a pretty polished CG film out of uh, uh, four years of kind of practicing those things. <coughs> at CalArts each year, you uh, learn you learn the skills also, but you make a film. Um, you spend less time on the individual skills. You spend more time each year on making a piece that communicates something, which okay. I think is a different. So I think at CalArts, you're learning to direct a little bit more. Okay. And at Ringling, you're learning a craft enough to um, you're learning craft enough to get a job doing that craft. Um, and I think there's value in both. I think if you hit it out of the ballpark at CalArts, you can get a TV series, you know, mm. um, with something with a great idea. But if you're at uh, but if you're not great at one of those skills, you're not going to jump straight into a studio doing that skill. So gotcha. Yeah. It's kind of the the advantage of learning a skill is you get to get into a studio, start making stuff, then and, and then you can rise up within there or right. try things or whatever. So I think there's there's pluses and minuses to both. Um, Ringling one I was happy with because it got me a job at Sony. Uh, so I started Sony Animation the, two days after I graduated wow. school uh, with Pete Paquette, who's another animator. Um, that worked at Blue Sky a long time, and he works in games now. Uh, he's a wonderful guy, too. Uh, you worked and, on uh, Surf's Up, right? Yeah, the first movie was Polar Express. Okay, okay. Uh, which, you know, it was a job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had uh, Bill Tessier here a uh, long, long time ago. Uh, he's one of our instructors here at iAnimate, but he uh, he worked on that one. It was kind of in the same boat, you know, Um he mentioned something effective. Who was the director? I forgot. Uh, is this, uh, Zemeckis. Yeah. Yeah. None, and none, none of us ever met him either. He was like somewhere else. And um, it wasn't what I pictured animation, working in animation to be. Mm-hmm. And it actually isn't what working in animation is for the rest of my career. That was like, a, luckily that was a very isolated experience okay. uh, that felt very isolated. And uh, the morale of the crew you know, I dropped in. They were already in pro in production. Like they were already few minutes finished, and the morale was not great already. Like you just landed there and you felt like I'm all excited, and it's like instantly you hit mud. You know, so um, and not. I don't think it. I think it was a fault of the structure of the whole way the film was going. It wasn't like any individual at Sony's fault there because the next three or four projects were amazing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, it's good to, it's good to look back on stuff like that and say, yeah, it's, it, we survived it and now we're doing all right. And everybody I met there, is, they're all great people. I met Bill, I met uh, Renato Dos Anjos, I met uh, Roger Vizard, um, and worked with various people. James Crosley was on that. So like a lot of people that I know from later and that are great people are, were, uh, we're there. there yeah. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then the next year, I uh, I got a, I was able to work on Narnia. Dave Schaub, the the animation soup on Polar Express, was what did uh, supervise the animation for Sony's part of Narnia, the first one. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did like the, the beaver, the wolves, um, you know, kind of the smaller character, some of the smaller characters, some of the snow scenes. But they, uh, I got to do the Mr. Fox. Oh, I got cool. to do Almost all of it. Wow. And um, it got me like a lead credit somehow, <laughs> even though it was kind of like a little bit fake because it wasn't a lead. I just animated the whole character, but they called me the character lead. 
Uh, and it all happened because I did a test, like a little like test walk and sit down and Andrew Adamson, the director saw it and he said, keep having that guy do that stuff. So I mean, <laughs> that could happen, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, Dave Jobs is a really nice guy who I'm still friends with. I see every once in a while and he was really good at kind of shepherding me into like, all right, this is what animating actually is. Um, and it was a little bit of, of it's visual effects, so it's still real. It's not too much character acting, but there was a little. And I, I met my really good friend Josh Beveridge on that on that show. He's now the head of animation on Storks. Oh, cool! Uh, and you know, no, it's it's, it's really cool to meet you know great animators as you go. So every show you pick up a few friends, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then. Open season, when Narnia finished, open season was in its like last couple months. So I helped out in open season for three months. Uh, met Renato there and Pete Nash and, uh, and, uh, Sean Mullen and Todd. Um, oh shoot. Todd Pilger was one. He, I think he's still at Sony, but there's, you know, it's really, you, it's weird how these companies kind of like people go and jump out and come back. And you can't exactly remember where you meet. Each no. <laughs> uh, and, and then open season ended, Surf's Up started. Um, Surf's Up was clearly going to be fun. It's a documentary characters talking to camera. The shots are really long. So, I mean, we were all like pumped about it and it's kind of, a, it was a unique thing at the yeah. time. It's very, it's very cool. And it's still pretty unique. I think, I guess, I don't know if there's been anything like that since then. I think I tweeted that one not too long ago, and I tagged you and uh, Jamal Bradley just mentioned that we had a yeah. mo- typical Fridays for, for us. We uh, will have a family movie night or whatever, and so uh, we picked that one, and I, I think I tweeted you guys not too long after, and I was just – I was amazed. It's been one of my favorites for a long time, but it just yeah. – I was amazed at how well it still holds up. Yeah, good. I mean, I think the beaks help because they don't move much anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, Jeff Bridges' voice is pretty amazing too. Yeah. Um, to animate too. I remember like sitting there in animation, this kid comes up and it's Shia and he introduces himself to all of us all excited and he's 16 <laughs> and he's doing the voice and, um, you know, now he's doing art projects, <laughs> uh, staring at people in galleries and stuff. So that's <laughs> interesting. And, um, but I met Renato Dosanos there who, uh, who's been a good friend since then. He was my supervisor on the sequences of making the board, like all the carving stuff. So that was really kind of fun to get to dig in and animate. There's a lot of character in that. Yeah. Um, I had a great time. I was on that for like a year. I think it was a really, really, really fun show to be on. Um, after that, we got into I am legend, um, which uh, kind of a really big shift of gears there, but I, I became kind of a quadruped expert for a little while because the fox, I think, and ended up doing the dog sequence in I Am Legend. Mm. Uh, me and one other animator, Ben Cinelli. And, uh, and Ben's awesome. And it was, it was kind of neat to take a sequence between two people and just fill it out, you know, cool. and do some mean zombie dogs. <laughs> um, then, so my friend Chris Cordingly, like I mentioned before, was working at Disney and, Pixar was bought by Disney right when we were working on Iron Legend, like at the end of it. And he was working on um, Meet the Robinsons, and, or A Day with Wilbur Robinson, it was called at that time. Mm-hmm. And he was working on that for a while, and Pixar came in and changed it up. And he lo- Chris mentioned that like it felt like a good time. It was kind of cool, maybe a good time to come over there. They were At the end of Iron Legend, they were hiring for 
American Dog slash Bolt. Yeah. Uh, and I saw Paul Felix's American Dog artwork, the early stuff in those tests, and I was like blown away. I was like, I have to, that seems fresh. I'm going to work on that. So Renato had already gone over there. So I handed my reel over to Chris and Renato, and I was the last animator hired for Bolt. Wow. Um, they had already done like the pigeon sequence, uh, the like New York pigeons. Mm -hmm. And fun. yeah, and well, they looked gorgeous too. That sequence like really <laughs> looks cool. And yeah. uh, you know, it wasn't American Dog. It didn't have the exact same thing, but I I got a feeling that there was some excitement there. Uh, after. After Bolt was spent, Bolt was really fun. I got to exercise the quadruped gene again, like, you know, kind of um, do a lot of of quadruped, Bolt running around, sitting, moving. Um, I think my favorite stuff in there, there's like a lot of quiet stuff I got to do in that show, which was really nice um, to, compared to like the zombie dogs they'd previously done. Yeah. Recently, you know, reason to that. Um, <laughs> Well, was it was an interesting time to go into Disney because there was like a shifting of regimes that was happening for sure. Okay. And still kind of feeling out uh, what the Pixar thing meant. Um, I think by then it was a little bit like at the end of Bolt, it was kind of like, are they going to keep this? Are they going to keep two studios open for both doing CG stuff? Mm -hmm. That was a legitimate question. It makes sense to ask that. I yeah. Think. And then when Bolt was like, Bolt came out and it did okay, but it wasn't like amazing. The question's like still in your head, you know, is it gonna, but we knew that Rapunzel was still on the, on deck and it was still a thing. And I really wanted to work on that. It felt like a uh, classic Disney thing coming back. Um, and then the directors, you know, they changed the directors of Rapunzel. And at first we were bums, but then that meant that Glenn was coming to us directly to, um, work with animation for the next two years on it, which was like a dream. So <laughs> uh, it was one of those, like it ended up being the best possible thing. So in, in that time between Bolt and Tangled, uh, the people that they, you know, that stayed around uh, got to do a bunch of animation tests with early Rapunzel rigs. Mm -hmm. So it was just us doing, it was like nine months of us doing uh, animation tests with Rapunzel, just playing around, and her design was changing all over the place, and um, we were kind of finding the appeal in her, and I think that was that was amazing because I got to, you know, John Cars worked a little bit on Bolt, but to work directly with Cars and Clay, uh, and then Glenn also, you know, you'd show a shot to Glenn or a test, and he would draw over it for two hours, and I just sit behind him and watch him draw over it, and it was great. <laughs> um, and the wonderful thing about Glenn that he had no ego about whether or not you even took the advice, you know, it was like, it was like an idea. It wasn't necessarily the best, but he was doing, he was kind of inspired and did what he thought. And, uh, you could use that as much as you could, uh, That's awesome. as, as, much, as much as necessary. It was amazing. And, um, and cars and clay are, you know, very different guys, but they're wonderful in their own ways, you know, um, uh, they really made a nice balance, the three of them, uh, for working on Tangled. And I got to, um, it was an interesting show because it started off kind of comfortable and speed wise. And then by the end, we were all like cranking to finish it. So yeah. in the beginning, you got, I got a large chunk. So I got to do a bunch of the Maximus Flynn scene, like all the fun 
horse and Flynn stuff on the tree, um, stomp, like going after the bag and stomping. And Joe Bowers did the stuff in front with him actually falling off. Mm-hmm. And then I was the tree stuff. And then, uh, and then I asked for, I, I wanted like an iconic scene. Um, so I was thinking like, you know, Little Mermaid does that thing on the rock. I was rock like, what comes is up, that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is the splash behind the rock? So it's probably when Rapunzel first sees the lanterns uh, on the boats. Oh, and I, that's your and I was shot? Like, I, yeah, so I was like, I want that shot. I want the shot where she runs to the front of the boat. Because I thought it was going to – they didn't end up supporting it with a score like I was hoping. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was all great, but I, it, it's not as iconic as in my selfish head it was going to be. <laughs> but, uh, she – I thought it, it, it was a really fun – I mean, I, I – Get, enjoy get digging into the physics of stuff like that. Yeah. So like boat having its like weight and rock and her kind of climbing to the front and the hair, how it kind of wraps around would be really, really great. So I thought, so I asked for that section and they were like at that point, because we had so much inventory and, you know, a lot of time to do it. They were just, we were just getting what, it, what you asked for for the That's most cool. part. If it was, if it wasn't like too in demand. Uh-huh. Um, and then, uh, Brent Hammond did stuff before that, and I think Becky Breezy did the stuff after. But I got like four or five shots in there. Um, I remember uh, Glenn Keane drawing over that particular shot. Yeah, I, don't, I forget where I've seen that, but it's. Pretty- I showed that. I showed that in presentations that I did, and I think because I think after I made the presentations, um, Clay and John used it too here and there. Okay. Because um, that was one of the ones that Glenn was doing pretty amazing drawings on. You know. Yeah. And it was really fun to see what he did and then what I ended up doing um, was it was using it, but you can't use it directly. That's one thing with drawers is like, sometimes you got to work through the idea of the note. Okay. Like take it perfectly, literally, even when it comes from Glenn. Can you explain that a little bit further? What do you mean by that? How come you can't? Yeah. I mean, take Glenn was giving you like these really beautiful arcs that if I, if I like put, if I went that extreme with her, the, the way her body shifted from one side to the other, it would be a little bit ridiculous looking. Okay. Uh, and you can get away with it when you're on twos, but when you go down to like 24 frames a second, sometimes when you push things too curvy, like uh, too wobbly and curvy, it wouldn't work. And if you look at, I don't know if that, that stuff is out there, but if you see the drawings compared to the finished thing, you can kind of see what that is. Gotcha. Okay. He did like a lot of flailing. And um, I tried to do it that big and it just felt huge. Okay. Kind of fun. Um, and when you when you watch it in the movie, it's kind of subtle, but it still has the same arcs in it. They just uh, tightened a lot. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that was absolutely fun. And then uh, and then uh, the next section, I got to do a bunch of the um, Mother Gothel songs, both of them. The one where she's mad and the reprise of it, and then the one um, the the stuff with Rapunzel. Kind of, there was a particular shot that was diff- very challenging that had Rapunzel running in circles and putting the chair down and then putting Gothel down and the hair the brush in her hand. Cause she had 70 feet of hair dragging behind her <laughs> that you couldn't mess up. Like you had to make sure that that spiral, um, worked physically, uh, which was a little bit of a mess. And then, uh, animating mother Gothel, like singing with the crown and throwing it where it was really fun to kind of dig into the, the villainy stuff. But you start to get, as you get towards the end of the movie, you get like single shots here and there and it's a little bit, uh, less satisfying in a filmmaker way. Okay. Now, uh, was that some of your first um, go at a musical part? Yeah, I had never done anything like that. 
was it any different challenge or was it pretty straightforward that, than what you expected? I think animating music, we, we learned a lot. Uh, you know, by the time I got to do musical stuff, there had been a lot of stuff done by uh, Tony and Amy Smead. And uh, I, we had been talking a lot about paying attention to breathing as much as the, when the sound comes out. Okay. And I think that kind of stuff, it was pretty set for the movie by the time I got to do it. So I just kind of, it was inspired by what everybody else had done okay. at that point. Like Mark Mitchell had done a lot of Gothel stuff already. That was his character. And, um, it, I, I feel like it was kind of set. So you just kind of followed the rules, okay. you know, paying attention to, I mean, I, I consider all animation, a little bit of a choreography, a little bit of a dance. So mm-hmm. there's music in all of it, but I think, uh, yeah, animating to music is just about paying attention to what it actually takes to make the sound. Okay. When you breathe in, when you breathe out, how sound is made. Um, it's kind of fun to dig into in a, in a major way. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, Tangled wrapped and did pretty well. Still wasn't like out of the park, but you know, good enough to stay to exist as a, as a group. Yeah. And, um, now that was kind of an interesting time though, wasn't it? Because it was like you mentioned, it did well, but still kind of a bit unsure. If I remember, I went and actually visit the studio shortly after that, yeah. and it was still like it was more sure. It was more sure than after Bolt. Uh huh. After Bolt, there was nothing to work on either for a while. So that that always kind of you know doesn't that's never exciting time. Great. Right. Like, do it and like right right now at Disney, there's like stuff rolling. You know. Uh-huh. Um. But it's not always like that. You know, right. Story when you get there, you, you don't start making it. So, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. So in in between each of these things, there are there is downtime too. So after Tangled, they started making these ABC ABC shows called Prep and Landing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked on those the the first one in the short after it. Um, Lino de Sal. And been a lead on Tangled, so he was kind of. Um, you know, in line to do something like that. It made sense. Uh, and then, what was it? Yeah, I think it was Lino. And then, um, you know, those were fun. They're a little bit faster of a time frame than we were used to because they're for TV and a little bit simpler, um, stuff. But it was really, you know, it was nice to do something. It's weird to do Christmas stuff. Like Polar Express was strange because it's Christmas for a year. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, even prep and landing felt like that a little bit. It's like six months of Christmas. You know? <laughs> okay. What was your footage for that show? You mentioned it was kind of a quicker turnaround. Was there a difference in footage that you had a, a per, per week? I felt like it was a little bit, but not like not stated difference. Okay. You know, um, not that I remembered at least, but it, there, the characters were kind of nice and simple and they were fun to animate, mm-hmm. you know, little roly poly things. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, I think, was it Prep and Landing get nominated for an Emmy? I think it did. Um, somewhere I got nominated for an Emmy for like a shot that was just a reaction shot. <laughs> it, felt, it felt ridiculous because like, hey, Tony Smead and Chad Sellers shots were on either side. <laughs> and mine is like a character going, huh, in the middle. And Tony and Chad shots are amazing. And I guess the, the Emmy rules at that time were like you had to nominate like the, the people that worked on that section or something, like whatever you were submitting. <laughs> so I felt like 
I kind of accidentally got invited to dinner. <laughs> Someone left the door open and you snuck in, huh? A little. I mean, I, I went still, you know, but um, <laughs> it, it seemed like unfair. It seemed like kind of like there's probably a really great shot, one shot more over that we should have, that person should have, or maybe like the rigor, you know, of the character. I don't know, something like that, but. <laughs> It didn't win, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm hoping I get my timelines right now, because, okay, so something, it feels like there's a lot of time in between Tangled and Wreck-It Ralph, and I guess there was. It's probably at least a year. Um, so, because Prep and Landing happened in there, and then a little Prep and Landing short. I'm, I'm just feeling like there was also a short called TikTok Tale happening around then that Dean Wellens made. Uh, that I don't know where you can watch that currently. I remember that one. Uh, and so, so somewhere in here, there's this program called Spark that happened with uh, Don Rivera Ernster, who's uh, who's now named Don Yamazi. She changed her name back to her heritage uh, Japanese name. Okay. Um, who runs the talent development program there and um, – sort of training and talent, internal talent development and external. Okay. And um, so I thought, well, maybe at this point I'm like, I want to go explore a little bit and try doing something else. So I thought maybe I could do VizDev. I've always liked painting. And I decided to try out for the internal VizDev thing. And I say this stuff because I want people to see that, like, sometimes you feel like something is a really big screw-up, and it's, it maybe isn't. Or maybe it, like... Maybe because of that screw up, like something else happened that was better. So I, um, they had an internal audition. They do this all the time where like every time there's a talent development class, if you're an animator and you want to try story or biz dev, you can audition for that stuff. And then they'll train you. They'll train one person that year and, um, and let you try out for that department. And in the end, if you go into it, cool. If you don't, you go back to your old thing. So. No harm, no foul. It's, really cool. it's it's amazing, and yeah. it's like great that it exists. And they and that you jump in with all the new students coming out of college, so they'll be like all the new students and one old person <laughs> in every class. And so I tried out for VizDev, and I did a bunch of paintings. Um, they said they wanted like some environments and characters, whatever, on uh, based on a story. And I missed the meeting. I had some other meeting and I missed the meeting where they said what story it was. I just didn't know there was like a particular story. I just thought it was any story. So I just made up my own story and I did a bunch of these designs, all the required things. It's up on the wall. And I get into the room with all the other people. There's like six or seven people auditioning and it's all like really similar. Like, I'm like, that guy like do the same thing as that guy <laughs> somehow. And I couldn't figure out like what I, would, I had this like weird feeling that I missed, like I messed up, uh -huh. but I wasn't. And then Mike Gabriel comes in, and he's like, "This is the strangest interpretation of Baba <laughs> Yaga I've ever seen," and it was like totally wrong. It was like <laughs> not similar. And then I got disqualified because I didn't follow the instructions. <laughs> um, it's totally fair, and I I think I should have been. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if the paintings are any good anyway, but I do <laughs> still funny. paint it. And so I didn't, you know, I missed that. I'm like, oh, shoot. So I guess I'm, uh, you know, it's, it was downtime for animating anyways. It wasn't much to do. Uh, 
But then a couple months later, a thing started called Spark that, that Don, also in charge of the talent development program, uh, championed along with Christina Reed, who was at that time the uh, head of development at the company. And they wanted to do like a Google 20% style um, little thing for the employees where you could spend 20% of your time or four weeks of your year, not really 20%, but four weeks of your year um, doing whatever you wanted, any kind of cool creative project, and you just had to show it at the end of that month. Mm. And every month they would have like a showcase of all the people who did their little Spark projects. And I'm the kind of person who like jumps at that sort of thing right away. So you got approval from your department to like take that time off technically and not animate and do something else. And it came out of the training budget instead of whatever show. So I did that first time I tried to do it and I went up to VizDev and I just walked around and I was looking at artwork and I love Jeff Turley's artwork mm -hmm. and I introduced myself and I said, Hey, will you do your four weeks right now too? Cause we can work together. I want to do like, I want to do like what you see is what you get animation, like uh, animate with color in real time, just moving polygons around. And I thought Jeff's artwork was amazing and it would work really well for this because he draws in a particular uh, beautifully flat way. He has a lot of dimension in his thought, but the color is flat and it would work with what we were doing or trying to do. So we did a little fake movie trailer called Pet. Um, and I worked with John Wong, another animator, Jason Figliozzi, who's the, who's the animation head on Disney's next short, Inner Workings. And... Um, we all got together and kind of, and, and Chris Cordingly, also another animator that I went to school with that I mentioned, we kind of got together and pooled our time to make enough animators together to make this thing happen. And we did no lighting. It was just color polygons with no shading or anything, just like beautifully designed shapes and uh, hand-painted motion blur over the end and like brush strokes. And then we did it in stereo. We found a compositor that was willing to kind of make it work in stereo. And then the music department scored it. Uh, we, and I met the music guys because of that. So it was just because I just wanted to make something cool. That's awesome. And, um, and Zach Parrish helped animating animate a little thing. And at Disney, whenever you need like a little extra animation juice, you just see if Zach can help because <laughs> it's insanely fast and great. And um, and, every, and after we started moving, people wanted to help a little bit because it, it was kind of cool. So. Yeah. Um, Jeff did that, or we all did that. We showed it at Spark, and people thought it was like a real movie that we were making at Disney. Like it, it kind of had, it had a, it made a splash, uh -huh. uh, and it made the Spark program like get a lot of attention for a That's couple. That's cool. Months. Um, and there were a lot of, there were a couple other ones too. Um, uh, Jamie Lopez was doing his like hullabaloo thing. I think kind of started that way. Uh, you know, there's. There was a lot of like projects that sort of like bubbled up a little bit in there, at least at that time for a while. Um, and they're still doing it in, in various ways there, that same program, which is cool. I think it's really great to have stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the let's see, so that happened. Ron and John were working on a movie that I probably can't talk about still, and <laughs> they. Uh, they saw it and they asked Jeff and I to come on and help do tests for their movie. And we started work. That's where I met some of the software guys because we were trying to feel about, feel out real ways to do this now. Mm -hmm. And then that movie kind of stalled. And when that stalled, 
were like, oh, I guess we're going back to other stuff. But then John Carr's got, he went and asked Lasseter if he could revive Paper Man, which he had um, done like five or six versions of story at Pixar before he came down to Disney. Okay. Um, and back then, Paper Man was going to be a black and white, um, photorealistic, kind of global illuminated um, film. But John came down to Disney, was around Glenn a lot, saw the drawing, all the history of line, thought it would be cool to... And then Jeff and I started playing with this color stuff, and John's like, I'm going to get those guys to come on with that stuff that they're doing, and we're going to make and bring line into it and make Paper Man in a different way, or at least try. Yeah, yeah. So we met up with Brian Whitehead, who is a, an amazing software developer. He was working on Neander, and it, at that time, Neander was just a single-frame drawing tool. And his the other side of what he was doing was it, it was like a um, – they were used on Princess and the Frog to do effects. It, he made a, an in-between tool that could in-between really fine draw, like um, drawings that don't move very much at all. Okay. So like, they're really hard to do in-between tedious work. And he made Neander to be able to do that. And it was really cool because it was kind of like you could take the line and you could um, automatically in between and it would give you like a little arc. And then you could slide that arc around to change the in-betweens and slide the center of the arc and change the timing. Okay. So, and you could do it in different parts of the drawing at different speeds. It was like kind of awesome <laughs> and inspirational too. So then we thought my pitch to them was like, what if the CG animation would do the arc thing for you? like in hundreds of places instead of just, you know, you manually doing it on two or three. Mm -hmm. And we could have like living illustrations that were as directable as CG animation. Cause the, one of the advantages of CG is that you can direct the acting like crazy mm -hmm. compared to uh, hand-drawn animation where each change requires redrawing everything. Right. So, you know, all along the process, you can nudge things around in CG and noodle it. And that's kind of one of the downfalls of it, but it's also kind of great for directors, actually, because change is easier. <laughs> so we worked for about six months on getting one shot to work. Um, me animating it by hand, like basically frame by frame, and then saying it should look like this automatically, like giving them an example. And working with Brian very directly, started with the ball bounce, just how would the ball bounce look in this look? And then, um, and then how would the character look if she just turned and just do a, a simple turn? And then we're like running out of time and John's got the story ready and we're, we have a window coming up where animators can work and we need, we, we need like a shot to show John Lasseter and say that this is what it looks like because we know that he's probably not going to buy off on it if it's just an idea, you know? Um, it has to be sort of, we wanted to, we wanted to be proven. Yeah. Uh, and so that meeting was very nervous because we made the shot where it lands in the bush in front of her and she looks at it and then looks up. That was like the first shot that was complete. Very and cool. That was the example to John and Ed of what it would look like. Um, dimensional and 3D, but still kind of illustrative looking. And um, luckily they, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that, John Carr's wanted to do this in the first place and that Lasseter wanted to support it. It was amazing. Uh -huh. uh, you could tell we started to pitch it to him verbally and then Carr's smartly just said, you know, let's just watch it. And then we played it. And it's like, okay. So it was like, it was like <laughs> no, no talking. Was just show. we went out for a party <laughs> and then we're like, oh man, now we got to make 
like five more minutes. And yeah. That, and that took like a year to get to that spot with one shot. So, and you haven't got it, hadn't even had it bought off yet. Mm-mm. Wow. It's just risky. We knew we could like retool and go back the other way if we had to, but, right, right. Uh, you know, it would have not been cheap, but, <laughs> um, Kyle Obermatt was the VFX soup on that and he was amazingly supportive. He ended up, he did a big hero six also after that, but he's, he's really supportive of innovative stuff and taking risks and that's great. Uh, creating proof of concepts. And, um, so it was really cool to work with Kyle on that. So it was basically me, Jeff, Turley, John Cars, Kyle, and Brian White are doing software um, to make it happen. And then um, w- the one key part of that whole thing was that you needed motion vectors that were frame-to-frame accurate, or pixel accurate, frame-to-frame, so you knew where everything was moving to pull the vector drawings along. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael Kashok, this amazing effects animator, wrote something in Houdini that gave us that information that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So <laughs> a bunch of pieces went together. And we all got a patent for it, so uh, wow. that was weird because I never thought as an artist that you know software patent was a thing you'd get. But it yes, is. that's cool. Uh, really fun. And uh, another cool thing about that is I got to meet this guy Eric Daniels, who was who made the original Deep Canvas, or was one of the big people who did that during Tarzan. So to kind of like look back at what they had tried before and try to like kind of recreate that for Paperman and for Feast eventually, it was pretty neat. So yeah. yeah. That- Paperman, I animated on Wreck-It Ralph for a couple weeks, like the last six weeks of Crunch. <laughs> Want to help out, you know? Uh, and then I went to Annecy to premiere the film uh, with John. Uh, you know, one of the amazing things about working on shorts at Disney is they really support the kind of getting them out there in the world. And uh, I got to go to the film festival in, in France, and it's an amazing animation festival that every animator should try to go to at some point. Uh, I'm going cool. in, going in a week again. Oh, very cool. But it's uh, it's That's really cool. great. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, so I, I, it'll be my third time in Asia. That first time was incredible. It was um, it's really amazing to see to premiere a short that people had, there's already a buzz for uh, like that because people had seen a little bit. And, you know, packed house auditorium and to hear that kind of, um, that applause and stuff really is satisfying at the end. I can know? imagine, yeah. And we all thought, um, Annecy has a little tradition of throwing paper airplanes. <laughs> and it's funny, it felt like right that we showing that short there. And that's awesome. The paper airplane tradition that they like, the, the, the uh, whole floor is like littered with airplanes before the start of every film. Um, it's dangerous to look back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, making that short was amazing. I kind of got addicted to the idea of making shorts. And I've always thought that, like, if you could make shorts for a living, like, you should do that. Because, like, it's a new thing. It's always new. It's a new adventure each time. And it's, you know, I'm kind of short attention span. So, <laughs> uh, so then, after that, you work on a record Ralph. It gets released as record Ralph. Um John wins the Oscar, which is amazing. Mm. Um, and and Christina Reed got kicked out of the Oscars for throwing a paper airplane. Who was the producer? <laughs> uh, she got ejected <laughs> right right when she won, basically, which is crazy. Kind of a way. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and then um, let's see what happened. And then um, the, I. At Disney, one of the cool things that they do is they every position that opens up, supervisor of show, 
you have to apply for and interview for internally. Um, so as Zach Parrish and I both interviewed for the head of animation on um, Big Hero 6, and then, you know, I, I think they suggested maybe we do it together. But I don't remember exactly if we... I think someone maybe have said that with like a wink. Like, why don't you guys do it together? Yeah. Uh, um, so we applied together. What are the qualifications? What are they looking for for that? I mean, you got a talented crew there. So what is it that they're looking for? for sure. There, I mean, there's a, um, there is a list of official qualifications, which is so many years. It's, it's like a normal job application list. Um, but what they're really looking for is someone who's a leader in the department who's been kind of advancing things on their own uh, and who's looked up to for their ability, uh, for their skill, and for their um, sort of ability to kind of pull a team along with them and their further ability to communicate with the director and um, the other departments. A lot of it's interdepartmental relationship stuff. Gotcha. And um, the... Yeah, so, and we interviewed with Don Hall, and um, the director, you know, the director's looking for a certain energy in his film. You want you want your film to always feel special in some way. You want the team to get excited, and one of those ways is, like, new head of animation. There's enthusiasm there, you know. Anyone who does a job for the first time, you can kind of bank on, as someone who's hiring them, uh, a level of commitment that's above someone who's done it six times. Gotcha, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. For any job, I think. So um, I feel like, you know, as a new person entering any kind of field, you realize that you have a little bit of that and can and can spend that capital if you want. Um, I feel like that's me a little bit now in the outside world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People don't know what it's going to be like, so they take a risk. And um, so the... That happened. We got we got the job. We started working on Big Hero Six. Uh, so I skipped Frozen. I was not did not animate at all in Frozen. Okay. And uh, and because as a leader, you skip the movie, like you prepare a movie while the previous one is happening. So uh, while the crew is animating Frozen, Zach and I hired on our leads: um, Nathan Engelhart, Brent Hamman, um, Michael Franceschi. Jason Figliozzi, and uh, yeah, that was it at the time. And then, um, but then Disney resurrected the shorts program officially. Um, they said anybody can pitch at the studio three ideas. And be similar to the Spark thing, I'm not someone who like doesn't take a chance at that, <laughs> and at least just see what it's like. Uh -huh. you know? uh, so. I pitched three ideas. One of them was Feast. Um, it wasn't called that yet. It was called Where the Humans Eat, um, which is a little more pretentious and, like, poetic, maybe, I think. <laughs> um, and it was inspired by I – I had uh, thought of this idea, like, six years before, but not as an animated film and not with a dog. It was just going to be, like – maybe an idea for an indie film where every single scene is around a dinner and you can tell how a relationship is changing based on what's on the table. That was like the kind of gist of it. Uh -huh. It was like, uh, so I filmed because of that, I had filmed all my dinners in 2012, every single one, like, um, in an app called one second every day. 
by this guy named Caesar Kuriyama, who I now know because I loved his app so much. I like <laughs> reached out and, um, and it was a Kickstarter thing. I supported it and I, um, I bought his friendship and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> paid off. Yes. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it was great. I wanted it right then because I knew I was going to like maybe use it for something. So the, um, that video is like pretty interesting because you can hear what's kind of cool about it is you hear sound design shifts, like the, the atmosphere of the room shifts with the meal also. Uh-huh. And there's like meals in airplanes and there's like meals in the park and there's times where you're just out drinking and you don't do any eating. And then, um, you know, and there's some stuff that you can tell is a little bit romantic. And I thought there was something really magical about the shift of uh, environment that told the story. Mm-hmm. So showed that video in my pitch to Lasseter, and I said it was going to be that, only we're going to have a puppy under the table that kind of grows up, um, and that's the character we'll follow through. And that's really like what the pitch was the um, first time. It didn't have... Um, didn't have all the shifts in it, but I didn't pitch it to John right away. The first pitch was to Rich Moore, uh, John Musker, Dean Wellens, uh, Steve Anderson, uh, Stevie Warmers, and uh, Maggie Malone, who's the development exec. So it was an amazing room, like very intimidating. <laughs> um, You've got a killer memory, by the way. You throw out these names like it's... But yeah, that's, that's killer. <laughs> I to give a little credit. You know? that's, no, that's great. I love it. Well, and um, they, you know, that first, I pitched that, I pitched another film, um, I'm not going to say what they were, but they were very different. So, like, one one was, like, huge in scope, one was Feast, which is very kind of, felt Disney-ish, felt sweet, and um, and then one that felt, like, way Warner Brothers-y, like, um, kind of all about the game of animating it and the fun that it would be to animate. And I'm making that one now some, uh, another way. But uh, okay. the it was fun to kind of uh, show. I felt like if I was going to meet all these people at once. I should not be like a person that is one thing. I should like have a couple different interests and the shorts feel very different uh, to show like the scope of what you're into. And they're all, you like them all for a different reason. Um, and then they okayed me to move on to the Lasseter pitch. So that's the story trust, which is at Disney is kind of revolving. It's not always the same people. Depends on who's busy. And um, and then they okayed four of us to move on to the to the Lasseter pitch, and um, that was amazing. But I was still head of animation on Big Hero Six, so I didn't know what would happen there. But uh, so the uh, once you get moving on a story pitch, you start working with development every week. And I got Rich Moore was given to me as sort of a uh, mentor to kind of pitch to whenever I needed. Also, Jim Reardon is head of story uh, to pitch to whenever I could. And I pitched to them. I pitched to Maggie and uh, I pitched to Nick Russell, like these development um, folks that help you hone it and kind of think about what. Uh, John's going to think and, and try to like at least guide you in a good way. They're trying to make one of these shine, you know, in some way. Um, and all development executives are doing that, really. Their, their job is to kind of shape your movie at every studio or whatever it is into something that is makeable at their at their place. And they, we did that for months. This, this happened in December. The beginning of December, I got okayed to go to John. I didn't pitch to John until the end of April. So it kept getting pushed back. Like John's busy, so you know. 
on and on. So I kept working on Baymax was my guy. Um, I got all the way, I got almost all the way through like the inflatable version of Baymax by the time Beast got greenlit. So, um, Beast was, they agreed to make it at the end of May. And, um, I was instantly off of Big Hero 6. <laughs> I, walked back, I walked back into the office with Zach and Karen, uh, Karen Ryan, our production supervisor. And I closed the door and Zach's, Zach leans back in his chair. He's like, you got it, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, mm, yeah. So. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Zach could handle it. He's fine. Uh, and uh and that's and it was off and running and then uh they gave me jim as an advisor for story and a couple story artists um at first it was cleo uh cleo pitt um who's the story artist at dreamworks now she's awesome cleo chang i think is her twitter Um, okay and um she Worked with me for about two months. I, I got an editor, Tim Tim Mertens, um, who was the editor of uh, Wreck-It Ralph, and that was awesome. And uh, so I worked with Tim and Cleo for a while and just kind of drew myself, started boarding, never done that before. That's that cool. fun to kind of dig into it. And then Cleo went to DreamWorks right in the middle of my short. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but she's great, so don't, I don't know. <laughs> and... Um, and then uh, Raymond Percy came on, and uh, Raymond uh, worked with Jim and Rich on Simpsons a lot. He was a Simpsons director and fantastically funny guy, so it was cool to have him. Lauren McMullen, who did the Mickey, directed the Mickey Short, she helped on some story, and Nicole Mitchell helped on some story, and um, the four of us kind of pieced it together in like six or seven different versions. First version was way too sweet; it was kind of a fake saccharine thing. Uh, we had the artist soundtrack in there, this piano thing. It just felt like obnoxiously sugary, um, but, you know, get you somewhere. Um, and then about three versions go by, and it doesn't feel like it's, it's kind of stalled a little bit. I don't exactly know what to do, um, but it doesn't feel special enough. And, and John's one of you meet John every month or so for an hour and talk about it and show what you got. And uh, it's, that's one of the, I mean, that's like the most nervous thing. And, uh, but it's fantastic. And then, um, you know, one of John's notes was just it wasn't, it wasn't feeling like clever and special enough. And um, I tried to think back to the pitch and what I was promising and like what I had showed in the pitch was this kind of like arty thing where the food's always in the middle. And like maybe if I just make a rule for myself, like I was trying, I was kind of giving in to the luxuries of CG camera and, um, and like the, the kind of freeness of that. And I felt like maybe if I, if I, um, made a rule that the food is always in the middle, like it is in that video, we could get somewhere where the audience could kind of feel like, like there's a little bit of an art because things are leaving the frame mm-hmm. and you have to kind of engage a little bit more. And I, and I think the, we did a version of that that got the okay to go into production. It was two weeks late. So okay. I was, if I had, if that had not worked, it probably wouldn't have been made. Uh. I think, because when you when you go to story, you're not going to make it yet. You have to get it approved out of story into into layout for to to like make it make it. So we have already made sets and we've already started making characters because you have to get ready. Right. But if if like it wasn't going to go, it wasn't going to go. 
Now, when John gives you notes that, you know, it's just not feeling special enough, is that just the note or is, does he give you uh, suggestions or now it's your duty to, hey, I got to go figure this out now? No, he's, he's, he gives great suggestions and, but it's not, it's not, they're not dictated. Mm-hmm. They're, they're ideas about what it could be, but he caveats things in a certain way, like saying, I'm not you. This is your film, mm-hmm. uh, which is a nice thing, you know? And then we brought Ed in near the end, like when we were kind of in the last bit of story. And Ed had a couple of really sharp, awesome notes about some cuts to make to make it tighter and, and quicker. Gotcha. Because he was fresh eyes, you know. Even John, you know, he's seen your thing like six times now. It's it's not gonna he's not gonna be completely fresh, but um, it's cool to show it to Ed. And he, you know, we all trust Ed too. He's got an amazing story sense, even though it's not his forte necessarily. Mm-hmm. But um, and then it goes into uh, layout and animation and. The struggle is normal, and we did a, we did 14 weeks of, of production on the images themselves, from layout to finished render, mm. which is pretty quick. Yeah, and um, we knew we wanted to be in Annecy. We'd already pitched it to the guys at Annecy in December, so they had seen roughness, like storyboards and art, and it's um, kind of how the film festival world works a little bit. You'll like pre if you know you're going to be tight on the deadline. You can preview stuff to people. Okay. And sometimes they'll let you like slide by deadlines if they've already seen enough to kind of, you know, and we weren't going to make the like, the, you know, official submission deadline by any means, you know. So um, we had to kind of just bring them on the ride if we wanted to show there. Okay. And um, which I think is kind of, that's interesting. I yeah. didn't know that until I, until I got out in this world. It turns out that's like really common. That's Okay. I'm sure you built some trust too. I mean, the fact that you yeah. shown Paper Man, this is Disney. It's not like so. for sure. Yeah, they know if you say it's a deadline and you're going to deliver it, you're going to deliver it. Yeah. It's that. Um, and then uh, music was another kind of interesting, like side thing. I I um, realized in the edit that we wanted to make the music only happen in the back end. Like it was better to have uh, source sound. It's called which is from audio sources on camera and ambient for the first half of the film. And only when it becomes a little bit magical does music come in when okay. like he makes a choice that's not dog-like. So um, it's a little bit more human. Mm-hmm. And then then it can be a little bit whimsical when we can have music. And um, my tent music was from Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is a really cool score. And it's hard to like match. It's hard to beat that. Uh, uh, but Beasts of the Southern Wild was like too much in people's brains to like use it okay. for real. So <laughs> We hired, uh, we hired Alex Ebert, who is the singer of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, to write it. And um, it was kind of a dream for me. To, like, I love, I like that band a lot. And to be able to, like, meet him and then, like, pitch it to him. And he says yes, like, right away. It was really, That's really cool. cool. Um, and then to get to work with him through the process of writing the score was amazing. Um, he wrote some lyrics to it. We didn't use those, but it was fun to see what his lyrics would have been. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you, you know, after the images is done, I felt like I had a month of like amazing playing around fun in um, like doing sound design, going to the sound design, like the Foley stage Foley, and making okay. sounds. And felt like I was on a universal tour or something. <laughs> but then the, the most amazing part, and it, it was the same in Paper Man, is when you're done and you go to the, see the score get recorded and um, the French horn player, like, the way the score is in, in it's very uh, 
it's very old feeling. It's very old school, like in how organized and professional everything is. It's old Hollywood. They're there at 9 a.m. They're there for six hours. They'll do what, you know, they do three hour sections. You pay for each one, I guess. Uh, and the composer walks into the room. They all get up and bow, everybody who's playing. And at the end, everybody signs each other's music. That's uh, cool. And it's done. Like, it's, they really get together, play a thing, and then they're, they're no longer <laughs> going to play it ever again. So it's weird to think about, like, famous scores and how, like, they played it once, uh-huh. right? you know, three times maybe. You know, with us, they played through the thing, like, twice, and it was great. And then we just did a few little, like, tweaks here and there. And the horn player was the guy who played the Jurassic Park horn theme that's, like, the thing. So that was cool for me. Um, and it was cool to see Alex Ebert kind of in his um, professional you know, composer mode. Uh-huh. And so it's really, it's really cool. And the same thing happened with, with Paperman and Christoph Beck who did that. Who's now done like some amazing scores since then. Um, so that's kind of, that was pretty special. And then we went to Annecy and premiered it and it was like a, a rocket ride after that. And then I came back and animated some big hero six. <laughs> <laughs> I got to animate Baymax going mad and throwing people around. And, um, <laughs> All hulkish. Yeah, that was really fun to get to do that. I said I wanted to do, like, I, was, I told Zach, I was like, just give me some, like, action. Like, that's what the movies, we want to make some fun action. So, and you do that, and I, you do that while you wait for the film to come out, because, like, you can't really show it or talk about it, you know? For, um, uh, okay, for Feast, right. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, gotcha. you know, we'll do a, they do a certain amount of publicity uh, when it gets close, and I get to be a part of some of that for Big Hero 6, but... Um, not a lot. And then the film came out and we did a few little you know, Q and A's, you know, and then I took uh, 45 days off and my wife and I, cause we got married during feast. We took the honeymoon after the movie came out and we went to Japan in Bali. Very cool. And uh, spent all that time just drawing and painting and writing and whatever we felt like doing that wasn't working. Um, came back and it's into, it came back and it got nominated a couple days later. And uh, that's that's pretty cool to get up at 5 a.m. and listen to the announcement. In that's bed. cool. And then instant text blow up <laughs> on the phone. Uh, and you know the actual process, I think, of the Oscars is really really nice. It's like it's uh, an understatement, but it's it's a lot of appreciation for the art of animation, first mm-hmm. of all, because you get to meet a couple of other really amazing animators and hang out with them a lot. Like cool. the Ponsco Hop guys, I, they're really good friends now because we were just around each other for uh, like a month mm. on all the stuff. And, um, this was who other, uh, Dice and Robert, Dice, Dice Sumi and Robert Kondo, who do Tonko House, who did the Dam Keeper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you have like your class, you know, you're like little class uh, uh-huh. nominees. And the all the stuff you get to do together, um, like all the nominees do all the cool stuff. Like you get to go to the events, the luncheon. Um, at the luncheon, I sat with Hans Zimmer, which is it's like amazing to yeah. have a little bit of a talk with someone like that. <laughs> and um, you know, all that is, it's kind of amazing. It's like you feel really lucky that you're in a position in the studio to make art like that that is not really um, about profit. It's about making something interesting, and and I think that's really and then, and then to be supported for it to yeah. submit something like the Oscars is also expensive, and I don't take that for granted at all. And uh, 
in the campaign and stuff, it's like, sadly, it takes that to get the visibility out there to all the voters. So, um, you know, I think you know, half of it is that you have to make a film in the first place, but then that support is really cool. So it's not, you know, it's not, you realize it's not just you, but then the nice thing about the nomination is like everybody, you, like everybody nominated does all the stuff. The only difference is that last day, um, you know, and then after that it's over and you're just like back, back to normal. So, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> which was, I mean, it's, it's not bad. It's great. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I came back to, um, I was one of the department heads at the time, like during Big Hero 6, I moved on to do that also to kind of like help run the department with, because um, all of our animators were leaving. John was gone. Clay went to direct Angry Birds. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to get him in on podcast here pretty soon. Now that yeah, Angry Birds out. Went off to, to Paramount. So we all, uh, he's doing Playmobil now, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, there was, you know, we needed, <laughs> we needed some, some people to so that was like hiring and doing and, and figuring out training and how we we're going to staff various movies and stuff. And it was fun to kind of get into that world a little bit too before leaving, which was emotional, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, Disney, it's the plus and the minus of, of Disney is that it's, it's an amazing support system, but the amount of movies that are made every year is one. And that's good. I think they should only make one a year. You know, we've seen the difficulty of studios trying to ramp up to much more than that. Yeah. And um, and especially with John, he's making more than one movie a year. Lasseter is like advising on all the Pixar stuff plus the parks. And I think that's keeping the quality level under him is important. So I don't, I don't, I think it's a good choice to do what they do, but there are a lot of directors ahead of me in, in line there essentially. Um, and you know, I, I, it would be amazing to be among that group, but, um, uh, just making a short doesn't get you that. So you just kind of, I, I was getting, I was feeling the pool, you know, from, from outside opportunities and also just like the wanting to like make stuff, like to keep making stuff now and not wait like six years to make something. So, um, and it turns out everything's going to take a while, but to start making stuff. Um, and that's why I left and I decided to go and do the Google thing because um, it's, I didn't want to jump into like an exclusive arrangement again, like with another studio right away. I thought it would be fun to kind of explore um, a little bit, meet writers and, but I still wanted to make things. So um, Google was willing to let me come and make this, but not, um, it wouldn't like stop me from doing other things. So, um, and they were willing to make, um, kind of like a, another art project, you know, something that felt like, uh, it was meaningful and different and interesting. And it came from Jan Pinkova. I met Jan Pinkova, uh, at Annecy, and, uh, during Feast and Karen DeFolo also, who's their executive producers and Jan's their creative director there at mm. Google Spotlight Stories. And, um, I, they said, think about doing something. And then I met them again at CTN Expo in Burbank a couple mm -hmm. months later. And I said, I think I would make something. I think I want to do a folk musical in a car and it'll be like giving tree. I think that's what it was. Uh, and they're like, okay, well, we'll bring our music guy down and you can talk to him. So, and then I met Scott Stafford who did the score for Presto. And the, and all the stuff for Spotlight Stories, so duet and stuff. He's a wonderful musician. 
and he works with a studio called Pollen Music up there in San Francisco, and they record. They have a little uh, studio in Noe Valley that is really cool, and it's all old and wood and feels, uh, you know, very homey. Mm-hmm. And um, so we started. We started talking about what that might be, and um, you know, I talked for like six months back and forth with them before committing to actually making it or doing anything. Um, but then once I decided to do it, it was like, okay, it's time to actually make it. And we, um, we started with, basically I started, I, I wanted Tuna Bora to production design the whole thing. She's a really good, uh, illustrator and I, I loved her work. I thought it was simple enough that we could get it to run on a game engine. Mm-hmm. And, um, so Tuna and I both moved up to San I flew to Burbank or from Burbank to San Jose four times. So Golly. I flew on 82 flights in the last year, um, oh my which, uh, Southwest, you know, so, um, <laughs> but Burbank airport's amazing. You can get up there quick. Um, my commute from Los Angeles to Google was an hour and a half, <laughs> which is great. So. <laughs> Like I've had worse commutes while living in LA. That's and just say, yeah, down south is not very uh, accommodating always with the traffic. So, um, yeah, but we uh, and Tuna did the same. Tuna works in LA, but and she came up not as much, but a lot of it. And we, you know, Tuna and I kind of like worked out story and art at the same time. So because I didn't really have a big team up there, I, I kind of used I used her as like someone to bounce all the various story ideas off of. The whole story, uh, this one, I decided to format it uh, like a pop song. So it has like the actual story structures and chorus, courses and verses. Uh-huh. And the courses kind of echo each other. And, uh, and it goes with the music. And, uh, and then there's a bridge, which is its own kind of fun time, different thing. And, um, that was the basic side, uh, structure of it. The weird thing about VR is that there's no such thing as an editorial system. So you can't really board in the same way that you're used to because you can board a, a movie, but it's not a real representation of the film because the movie version is going to feel like slow if you cut it slow enough to make it work in uh-huh. 360. And then you can't watch the whole movie together because it's all got to look. Each scene has to load on the phone and it takes a few seconds until they're optimized. So you don't want to be optimizing scenes that are temporary. Mm. So there's really no way to watch the film until it's finished. At all, and we know, and we didn't like. There was no real sense of like watching it and saying that's going to work or not. It was just kind of hoping. Now you're going along with the music though, too, though, right? Yeah, but the music would pause in between each scene. Okay, yeah, I watched it today just to make sure, but yeah, I guess you're right, huh? Until uh, those scenes needed to be, they were about 300 megs each, and they needed to be six megs or less. So they had to take all of the geo that was modeled and kind of like cull it down to almost nothing to make it work. And uh, because you needed to cross load scenes and no one's been doing that. Um, you know, one of the things I always thought was kind of BS was that people were like, you can't cut in VR. But for me, I thought if I structure it in a way where there's, if you're in a car and there's like a, a, an environment that doesn't change, mm-hmm. you know, the thing was in the same spot. And I think, you, hang on, said you, cut. you said an environment that doesn't change and it cut. Yeah, like the, the geometry of the environment doesn't change. The color does and the lighting, but the actual place that you are 
is physically the same, even though the world changes, like time jumps. So there was, those were different, or those are the same locations, just? They're different locations outside, but inside right. the cars. Is, yeah. yeah, okay, okay, I'm following you. Right, right, okay. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's one way to get around this kind of disorienting VR cut problem mm-hmm. that people are saying is a thing. Um, I know Jessica Brillhart at Google, who does live action films there, has figured out this kind of cool, um, she sees her film as these concentric rings, and then each ring can rotate. So she has points of interest marked on these rings that track. And then if, wherever you're looking, the points of interest will line up. So the whole ring of the world will line up so that on the cut, the point of interest is still at the same place oh, that your cool. current point of interest is, which I think is another way to deal with it, um, yeah. to visualize it. And I'm sure people will come up with lots of other ways too, but yeah. um, those are two. So I, I'm excited that people are starting to figure out how to do translate some filmmaking language into these other things. And, that's the only reason I really wanted to do that is like, I thought it'd be a fun experience to, ex- to experiment with another format. That's not quite, that, that we can use the same languages in some ways, but it's not exactly the same. And <laughs> it's a reason to play around with stuff. And, and there's a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's a little easier now to get funding for VR stuff. I think than other things because right. we're, we're in that kind of experimental zone. So, what was your take, or at least after this project here? Because I know there's still there's a lot of excitement behind VR. It's new, yeah. new in this generation as far as what we can, we can do, um, but I think there's still a little uncertainty as well. What's your take after having done work? I think it's a lot harder to animate stuff for sure, because you there's, there there was um, it was really a challenge because there's no the noting systems like. You, we use shotgun and that's, it's a great system, but it uses videos and that means the animator to get notes would shoot a video, but then you either zoomed out and it's really warped to see the whole character or you need like four videos. Mm. You just show the face and the feet and the, like what's happening in the back. It becomes like a lot more work than it seems. Okay. It's way more animation work and things don't leave frames. So that's kind of tough. Um, Composition is a little bit harder to deal with because you don't know where the frame's going to be. For me, I cheated that. I, I was using frames within frames by by holding things in nice compositions in car windows, which you can do. Films have done that forever, like in um, The Graduate, you know, Under the Leg, or um, The Searchers, the opening scene, and The Searchers Through the Door. Like, we've always been framing things in movies in frames, and I think in VR it's more important to do that because otherwise you don't have composition. Okay. It's just loose. And uh, especially in the headsets where there's no outside edge, really. Right. It's more of a circle. And um, that's tricky. But animation is way better in VR than live action is right now because uh, live action is kind of baked in. And it's not like if you do this, it doesn't like it's not accurate. You know, pixels don't all have depth individually yet. Um in animation, it's a 3D game engine world, so you can actually mess with time a little bit more. You can like move characters around. They don't have to always be doing the action in the same place. Mm. You know, if you're looking here and the cut happens, and you need them to be in front of you. You can just move the character there. <laughs> Live action, you can't. It's baked into the the shot. You uh-huh. know? Just a sphere of video, which isn't that cool. And uh, so I think animation will make the coolest stuff in VR for a while until. Because you need a camera that 3D scans a room at 90 frames a second uh. to make live action like really dimensional, and nothing's close to that. Like the fastest 3D scanner is like 
couple seconds at best, I think. So I think the best 3D scanners in the world are probably on like self-driving cars. And there's that spinning thing that's like really, but it's not spinning at 90 frames a second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's going to take a while to get like live action VR that's as fluid and, and editable and interesting as animated stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I think for games, it's amazing. I have a Vive. Right okay. There. Um, and it's really, I've started to try to make stuff in there and like use tilt brush and draw in 3d. And I think for creating animation, it's going to be amazing. Very cool. Cause we're already, we're already working in 3d. There's no reason that we should be on screens. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was the fun part about Pearl was I got to make the theater version of it and I went in and got to record camera moves and then we rendered out the video from that camera move. Like, you know, when you see the theater version, what do you mean by that? We have like a film festival 2D theater version. Okay. 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 And, uh, it's just a regular movie and we recorded my camera moves and then rendered them out at 4K and made a movie out of it. I'm following. It was like doing like a, the smallest version of Avatar possible. Okay. Uh, Sorry, because I have a note here. I asked Ken Fountain. He's one of our instructors, and I, I knew he worked. Yeah. I was trying to get him in on this, but I've done a podcast with him. He said, no, nah, just take Patrick. He'll, he'll have plenty yeah. to talk about. Um, <laughs> but I asked him a question about it, and he said, personally, I found working without a set framing a fun challenge. He said, more like theater in the round, where the actors are uh, responsible for the focus more so than the camera. Yeah, for sure. So he mentioned the theater parts. So that's why I thought you were kind of going with it on yeah, that. Yeah, I, I definitely um, – I thought about directing this as like theater too, where you just have a person. It's kind of the opposite of theater in the round, really, because it's like the theater is around you versus it being the audience around the theater. But it's a similar kind of like feeling. And you have to direct the audience in a similar way that you do in theater, which is spotlighting things, not literally all the time, but with sound and with activity. And uh, you make it so like if people are looking the wrong way, it's kind of boring. Well, you broke in the play, it's okay. There was one part in particular um, that actually did that for me. It was kind of cool, though. It's the nighttime. It's the Christmas. What's that? The Christmas part, or the or the the fireflies. The oh, fireflies! Yeah, yeah. Cool. I, I was looking up the front, and all of a sudden I see the fireflies kind of going. Well, that's what directed me up, and all of a sudden you look yeah. up, and she's catching one. So it was that. Yeah. That's yeah, it was neat because I wasn't looking originally. Yeah, I think the, I love watching it. It's it's different. And each experience is kind of different. And I think it's cool to have this as an experiment because um, there's the theater version and people can like that for or not for different reasons. And then there's the phone thing. And then there's the VR vibe, like in the world where you can stand up and look out the sunroof. And uh, okay, it's very different in all of them. And in the Vive one, some people sit in the backseat. Some people decide <laughs> I'm going to sit in the backseat the whole time. And it's really it's really interesting to see how each of it affects you differently, and um, I I think it's cool to have that to like kind of show the different the ways people can be affected by this types of stuff, and I, it's all stuff that I didn't really plan for necessarily. So you can break it, you know, you can stand on the road, um, but. <laughs> It's cool to be able to try that and see how it makes you feel uh-huh. and then try to use that in future stuff somehow. Uh, it would be kind of neat. I, I don't know if I'll do more of it. I think if it comes up and it's interesting and it's, it's free, 
this is a Google thing. It'd be cool. Yeah. Um, but I, there's not a lot of that around, you know, uh, but we'll see. You okay. know, Story Studio doing cool stuff. Uh, Baobab Studios is doing some cool stuff mm-hmm. with Eric Darnell. Um, I, I think Glenn's doing something somewhere. I don't know. It's like, it's cool to see like people kind of trying and partnering with interesting people and seeing what happens. For sure. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I'm, we finished it in November, so it, it just didn't work. It had to be opti- it took four months to optimize it and get it working. What game engine uh, do you guys use? It's their own from scratch. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So it's very tailorable to whatever. Uh, that's why they were make, able to make it work on the headset so easily. Okay. Um, like they, they figured out what they needed to change and did it, and it, it was like a few days. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't even know it was going to work on the Vive, but then I, they started sending me messages like, it's the best, you should watch it. So I'm like, oh, shit, I need to see this now. <laughs> And Cassidy Curtis was the um, kind of the VFX soup of it, and he he made the really cool, like interesting um, kind of torn paper looking shader edges. Mm-hmm. That really, you need the vibe is like a way to see all that in its glory, like with the kind of the lens distortions and flares and the grain and chromatic aberration and all the stuff that he was able to get working on a phone in real time. It's kind of amazing. Wow. Uh, so, and he's been a, he was a PDI guy for years as an animator, but before that he was, uh, he was into non-photorealistic rendering mm. techniques of the nineties. So for him to kind of come back to it was kind of cool. That's really awesome. cool. That's really cool. Kid- you know, a lot of PDI people worked on this because I mean, unfortunately they closed right before we started working on this, but fortunately, uh, we were able to have a couple people come help. Take the know? talent. Yeah. Yeah. Ken Fountain also mentioned, he said, I found the simple graphic design of the characters really uh, forces an animator to get to the core of the emotions they need to express. He said, it really focuses you to simplify your choices without all the extra photo real detail. He said, I found that one of the most enjoyable things about the project, saying more with less. That's nice. I like I like how considered and thoughtful everything Ken says seems to be in these uh, blurbs that you read. <laughs> <laughs> He's wonderful. It's been, uh, it was nice to be able to meet Ken. I love that there are, there's the ability now to animate remotely on, on projects that, that people can work like anywhere in the world on some of this stuff is cool. Just, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, uh, it's kind of neat that that, the internet enables like our locations to shift so much. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish it worked for all, all manners of the business, but it doesn't. Yeah. Hollywood still works on like phone calls, like, (laughs) <laughs> this video thing, it's too new <laughs> for the agency. So how did you pull in your talent? You know, how did you get Ken Fountain? What uh, was the process with it? A lot of recommendations. You start, I start, you know, Karen and Jan know people. Um, they had worked on a couple other projects. So people who had worked, Sean Mahoney, who had worked on a couple other projects, he came on to Animation Soup, the thing. And uh, casting new people from PDI and then uh, – I'm not sure how Ken came on. I, I don't know who recommended. I think it was Karen Duflo. Um, we worked in a little studio in downtown San Francisco for the people that were there, and then you know remote people around the, around the world. That's cool. Some artists in Scotland and Australia and wow. in Virginia. And um, you know, it's we've continued. And, and I've Ken animated on the pilot that I just got picked up. Um, 
So it was kind of nice. It's nice to meet people and then get to work with them again and other stuff and yeah. offer. It's all, I'll, I'll keep offering Ken stuff if he's willing to do it. You know? <laughs> uh, he's a great animator. He's a good so, animator, great guy to work with too. Very easy. I'm always looking for like remote people to kind of uh, work with because um, things pop up. And the nice thing about working remotely is you kind of can choose. Yeah, I can handle that this weekend. I can do a shot or two in this week, you know, and, uh, it's nice to have in your pocket like a list like that, and I do keep that because it's you never know when something comes up, and you know a month from now or two, and when uh, so I do kind of keep track, and it's 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 great when you meet people like like Ken that um, get a lot done and do it great, do it well. Very um, cool. You don't have to like worry about uh, too much teaching or noting in the process. You gotcha. Know? Uh, and then, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool to see. I know Pearl, I was very unsure about how people would react um, or even get the story because I know it's like a really hard we, – we couldn't try it out, so it was just kind of like a shot in the dark in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even internally, we're like, eh, I don't know, that's, that's okay. Um, but then it's really satisfying. We showed it to Rebecca and the VR section and to see people, like, take off the headset and they're just, like – in tears, um, <laughs> amazing, like guys. Well, I saw I just, Darren uh, Butters his comment uh, via Twitter. He said something like, "You own another <laughs> a new cardboard." Uh, yeah, the cardboard is like cardboard's cool, but cardboard can't run it fast enough. So that's like it's like uh, one of those. It's cool, but it's thirty frames a second. Okay, so it makes my wife throw up. You know, uh, <laughs> he was just saying you own a new one because he sobbed on it, and it's all messed up now. <laughs> I love Darren. He's um, a great guy. I've met him a couple times here. His daughter's in sitcom too this this fall. Um, She's where? His his daughter's an actor. His little kid um, oh. is is um she's really she's fantastically funny and she's in sitcom this fall. That's awesome. Uh, on ABC with my sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. That's very yeah. cool. I met him and I forget it was something at Disney. Uh, He's the MC there. He um Darren. What was it called? Though? I can't remember now. Insp- Inspired Dave. That's it. Yeah. So that's where I met. Darren, uh, Darren's a very funny guy. He's yeah. a very funny animator, very talented animator. But he would do – he's a magician. He would do improv. He taught improv. And he uh, did a, a warm-up for TV audiences that's with crazy. his uh, brother-in-law. And he has this kind of knack to get the crowd going. So uh-huh. they uh, – you know, Disney asked him to do that a lot. It's not his job. He's like doing yeah. that as a favor, but I mean, he's really wonderful at it. And, um, you know, he's a great animator also. So yeah. it's good to have that around. Um, such an entertaining sense of entertainment in his work. Um, yeah, I love Darren. <laughs> <laughs> and now I guess, you know, Pearl's out on, and we're going to Annecy with it. And I'm excited to see like, there's a Pixar and a Disney short premiering there, which I can't wait to see both of them. Yeah, that'll be neat. And uh, the red tor- tur- the red turtle, the red tortoise, is a feature by Ghibli um, that's supposed to be there. So I'm I'm very excited to kind of wow. you know one of the gifts of making shorts is to go around to these festivals and we that's try to cool. take advantage of it whenever I can. Um, but it's tough now because I'm working on like seven other things, so you can't just take time off. <laughs> Uh, there is no time off. There's no weekends anymore. Um, so when you say seven other things, you've got your sitcom. So, but yeah. is this other stuff like other shorts for other like Google Spotlight or other 
things. Yeah, I'm doing one other short that hasn't been announced, and okay. then uh, so I want to keep making shorts because I always told myself that that was a real career. That's like could be cool. Uh, and then you you try to get movies greenlit features in various places, and that takes a long time. And you get into this development cycle, which is cool and fun and neat to experience, but it's not, uh, it doesn't support you. Um, like you can't support a career, uh, developing features unless you are, unless you have a first look deal with the studio that's like paying for an office and like right. all that kind of stuff, um, which I don't have. So and I don't really want. So the, the interesting thing, you get to work on a lot of different things, but nothing's really going until it's going. And then it's full time when it happens. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, and tried to do a bunch of other things so that like right when we started the Google thing, I met with the guys at Happy Madison, this guy Doug Robinson, who produces the Goldbergs. And, um, you do a thing and you do a thing when you first get an agent called a general meeting with like hundreds of people, which is like a first date. It's like four first dates a day. <laughs> for a lot of and, um, it occurred to me like a week into this that I should be taking notes at each of them. Cause I just didn't remember. Who said what? Uh, but a few of them turned into real things. So I met uh, Sarah Esberg and Jeremy Kleiner at Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's production company that makes fantastic films. They made Selma and 12 Years a Slave and World War Z. Hmm. And, um, and I met them because I love this book called Battling Boy, which is a graphic novel by Paul Pope. And um, so I'm working on that in development with Jason Manzoukas, as a writer who, and Jason's an actor normally, but, uh, he's in the league. He's a character named Rafi. And, uh, he's in a lot of stuff, but that's, his, that's the thing that people yell at him in the street. Okay. And, um, so you, there's that, there's a, a, a graphic novel called Nimona that we're doing with Fox animation, which I absolutely love by Noel Stevenson, who also does Lumberjanes and the writer we're working with there is, is he wrote Kubo and the Two Strings, which is the like the movie coming yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. That one and, looks uh, really cool. So it's really fun to kind of work with different writers and try to make things happen. But until it happens, you're not really working on it. So mm -hmm. you want to do another stuff. So the TV show happened out of the Happy Madison meeting where um, we just said, what if we do like another show kind of like Alf, but maybe like Ted sort of Alf sort of imaginary friend thing and then turned into... Um, he introduced me to Adam Goldberg and David Garasio, two writers. Goldberg has the Goldbergs. Garasio uh, was the showrunner of Community um, in between Dan Harmon. Uh, and fantastic writers, and um, we kind of put a pitch together and, and made a pilot in the meantime for, a, for the first, I think, the first comedy ever, live-action comedy with a main character who's animated. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, Son of Zorn is doing it too on Fox, but it's, his is too, that's 2D, and it's like a He-Man thing. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it looks awesome too, and it's Phil and Chris, it's Lord and Miller, so it's gonna be amazing. Um, but, it's pretty cool, we, we think we figured out a way to kind of, uh, do a show at a feature quality that, um, that actually works, and, um, excited to do that too. That's very cool. And uh, we're filming in a couple months and ramping up, uh, Figuring out how to do the animation now. So, um, you know, any animators want to work on it, feel free to reach out because um, we'll need some. So. All right. That's <laughs> <laughs> advertising for the, for the uh, podcast. <laughs> if anybody listens to the end, 
Very cool. So, with any questions from you or anybody, I saw your tweet. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I think I did a little too late. Now, you kind of, you're jumping from, you know, Disney to Google Spotlight to something like this where it's, uh, live action with, uh, CG. Obviously, it's story for you. What is it about that that just really kind of drives you? I think it's story and a new experience, like something else okay. to try. Um, cause I'm, I just want to, you know, you want to take it all in. You know, you only have so long to, to live and do this stuff. And it just seems like, you know, you do the same thing over and over and it's just not exciting. So, uh, I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to, to do some of that stuff. So I feel like we should, I should try sure. at least be able to talk about it later. Um, for story, there needs to be, this is interesting. I've been, ta- I talked to Clay about this. Well, we texted about it that you, you find there's a lot of scripts out there like that people want you to make or basically to get something made in Hollywood. It's like you have to package it. You have to get a director that people are interested in combined with a script that people think is good enough combined with like uh, a look or a studio or a producer that's like got a reputation that gets things done. And it's like this group of things that makes it work. And, um, and it all has to be kind of somehow fiscally viable too. Mm-hmm. It's a business. So you get a lot of scripts and, there's a lot of stuff that people want to make that just doesn't seem like it's going to be very good. Like it just doesn't spark you. It seems like something else or it seems like, and it's, it's a really, I think it's a really interesting exercise to just read, like find scripts out there, Like you can download a lot of stuff on like the blacklist. You can get all of those scripts that are like what Hollywood considers the best unmade stuff that year. Mm. Um, and you can see what good things are, what people think good things are. And then like, just, you know, I don't know how you search for bad stuff other than have it sent to you, but, um, <laughs> and, and try to see like what it, like, cause the things that are good, there's like a point of view, there's like a voice and there's like some, there's clear inspiration in it. There's something that's kind of magical about the concept and the original spark of it that if you hear, you're like, that is cool. Like there's something like, and you feel like all those ideas are gone until you read another one. And then you're like, oh man, there's another like really cool idea that is not gone yet. So they're out there. And it's, for me, it's like finding a way to kind of spark your inspiration and then telling a few people about it to just hear yourself say it. Mm. Um, you know, and, um, I think that's, I like to pitch movies to people, even ones that we're working on, like Nimoda or Battling Boy and say the general gist of it, just to see if I can like, get through it in a sentence that sounds inspirational and that people will be like, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Cause that's an important part about making something, you know, um, with Pearl, when I got down to like, it's a folk musical, it's like a giving tree car story, folk musical, uh, kind of thing. It, people were like, that sounds like something that no one would ever make in VR. So it becomes like an interesting thing to me because I'm like, well, if they're going to, if I'm going to be allowed to make this, it will stand out in VR because no one else is going to make anything like that. Right, there's a million right. like zombie shooting things. Uh, <laughs> Cause those are the obvious things. So what is like the non-obvious thing that could still be cool. And, uh, and then sometimes it's good to combine. I keep Evernote like there's of on my phone and on computer. And it's like my notebook. That's always, I just, I don't really tag very well, but I always make sure like in the, in there somewhere I write the name of the thing that it is. 
Um, so if it's like a cool movie title, I write movie title, and then this. So then when I search movie title, I come up all my cool movie titles come up. And it's just to kind of like if you think of something, write it down. And if you if you read it like a month later and it's still cool, then it's probably worth something. Okay. But sometimes you'll write it down and then you look at it later and you're like, no, nah, I don't even know like why I was thinking that was cool. And then I never delete it. But, um, and then I think sometimes it's cool to try to combine things that inspire you. Like if you have like, um, like for me, the, the dinner thing felt cool already, but when you put a puppy that grows into a dog and there's a relationship there, it becomes, it elevates again. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is a pretty important part. And then I try to structure it. I try to think like, what is the ending? Like, what is like the spin and that makes this really interesting that people will like get chills for. And if you can find that, you can usually build a structure, a story up to deliver that. Um, I think it, I think it's like a cool idea that inspires you and then an ending that like really will get people goosebumps and it's like the goal. Do you um, work the ending pretty quickly? I like to. When I don't have an ending, I feel really nervous. Okay. Cause I, I forgot who said it, but, um, I don't know if it was someone from Pixar or Disney, but mentioned you got to get an ending in because it makes it so much difficult to find your way or something along that lines, but seeing how important that ending was. Um, yeah. It, it guides you for certain big choices along the way, you know, especially if you're going to follow like kind of a classic structure thing, which you should at least until you, do it so many times that you're bored with it. Gotcha. Uh, I think, I don't know. I'm not, too much, I don't think I'm that much of an expert at that yet, but I enjoy digging into it. It's like a philosophical puzzle always. And, um, it's been fun to work with different writers who have different kind of approaches to that stuff too. You know, some people are more formula than others. Um, so it's kind of, I'm in the middle of it, so it's hard to say if it's successful or not until something comes out and it's good or not. Mm-hmm. Pearl, the structure is very not like that because it's a, it's a pop song, um, and it's very experiential. It's not very like A to B story story. Right. Okay. Um, I had a version that was like these little scenes, like different owners of a car, and there's something cool about that, but they, the characters themselves don't connect enough. Like if I was going to do it realistically, where it's like literally like the five people that own this car, what was one day in each of those people's lives? I thought that'd be a kind of a cool story. Okay. Um, we weren't getting this emotional connection because there was like the, the object itself didn't mean enough to really care about. Uh, but I still think there's something cool about that. So like you find little inspirational things like that. Uh, I always loved Kevin Nelson's drawings of the road that he did for American Dog. This, one of the artists at Disney did these really cool kind of like desert scapes of highways going off with just little specks of light that I thought were amazing. And little <laughs> back in the area, you know, it'd be cool to have that uh, feeling. So what was your biggest just, challenge with Pearl? That that's like story. If it was going to hold up when we saw it to come okay. together, gotcha. if people would just miss it, you know, like, Cause you weren't, you couldn't force people to look at it, you know, in the right way. So okay. you would just hope that like people would see the story elements and we could guide it with sound. And, uh, the neat thing is that when I watch people watch it on the Vive, I, you can see what they're looking at. So I can tell they're missing stuff, Okay. but they still seem to get the feeling like okay. the whole emotional experience seems to wash over you enough that it, it's not hurting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
but I don't think I don't think the story comes across as like a great story in the way that in an A to B way that um, like a short like Presto. Like, I'm trying to think of shorts that I think are kind of amazing or For the Birds or something like it's, yeah. it's very it's a directly told story that's fantastic in that way. I think with VR it's harder to do that because the audience wants to look. So um, you have to make the story a little more abstract and a little more part of the environment. Um, to make it work, maybe. I don't know. Okay, so really don't want no one's ever going to be an expert at this because like, you can only do one a year or something. <laughs> uh, what was the timeline for uh, Pearl for you? Uh, we started it in May last year, and then um, animation went from like July to the end of September, and then we finished color, and um, there's no real lighting. Finished color and modeling in November, and then it was software updates and optimization until it, like a day before it came out. Man, so, that's crazy. They have to make it work on so many different phones. They have like hundreds to make sure it all works. Um, and then they try to break it in all kinds of ways, and if they can't break it, they put it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a video game more. It's a little frustrating as a person who likes to like fix things at the comp level um, that you can't. There's just no there's no comp level. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can't paint fix anything. <laughs> there's all kinds of bad stuff in it. Like there's wonky stuff you can see through characters sometimes. I, you just have to live with it. It's just part of the experience. Part of the low fineness of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, Who or what are some of your influences? You mentioned you, you read a graphic novel. Do you read much? Is there certain things that you, that you really just draw from? Yeah. I mean, if you I watch a considerable amount of movies, uh, I don't want to be the person who references movies, though. So I, I don't read a lot. I, I have a few f- things that I like, and I've reread occasionally. I, I'm a compulsive go down the YouTube hole and watch like lectures. I, I watch like the Nerd Writer. I watch. Um, I love those little. I love the video essay trend. I know it's like a little bit over the top and cheesy at this point, but like. <laughs> I can fall into that all day. Uh, I like, you know, I, there's a, let's see, I, uh, I, I follow a couple painters that I really love. I love like Alex Konevsky. He's a figurative painter that's amazing. Uh, that kind of influences my look of things. I love, I love Jeff Turley's stuff, even. I, I get I, don't know, I get frustrated when I can't hire him on stuff because he's working on other things. You know, <laughs> he's got some amazing projects he's working on that I can't mention, but I, I, they're like I can't wait to see what he does all the time. Um, <laughs> and and Tuna too, she's fantastic. And then uh, the you know I try to be influenced by everything, and I try to have a little bit of time to like exist, though that's been hard. Um, so like. You know, Annecy really is only like a two days of work. So my wife and I are going and we're just going to hang out with, um, you know, the, some of the Disney people, some of the Google people, meet, enjoy France, you know, for a little while. Uh, I think that you want to be inspired by your life to not be derivative, but for that to be, for that to work, you have to like do stuff outside of your um, bubble. Mm-hmm. It's hard sometimes, uh, especially now when I'm trying to get projects greenlit. Green yeah, you know, um, 
which is convincing a, a large group of people that it's worth doing, which mm-hmm. is kind of a crazy thing. You don't have to do that with shorts. With shorts, you can like hit on an emotional level and uh-huh. it's like, we'll do it, you know? Because <laughs> uh, there's no financial reward for that really. Right, right. Being a studio that makes shorts, I think it's really cool. I think actually people want to work in places that do things like that more. Um, because it's, it's, it feels artistically, um, worth it to work there. Where do you see a market for, for shorts? Well, the VR market is a huge market for shorts. I think that's the only one right now. Yeah. That's actually like able to make quality animation. Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's market for short entertainment on YouTube, but it's not high budget. And, um, you know, budget in animation is only just time. It's how much time you spend on making it. And you can tell when things are made quick. And um, even in VR stuff now, a lot of stuff is just demo-y. It's like not quite a full of thing there. It's like it's it's fairly low budget. But there are a few places that are pushing the high budget stuff in VR. And I think that's great. Um, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be advertisers are going to go crazy with it. They're going to use it. Um, I don't know if that's great. But... <laughs> There'll be, there'll be funding there if people come up with great ideas. You yeah. Know? Uh, that's where, if we're making shorts, that's where it's at right now. Uh, for sure. And that's not really a short film, I get, but I mean, it's, think of it as a play. And then yeah. you can, you can still consider yourself, you know, an artist. <laughs> like a different type of thing. Do you enjoy directing more than animating? Ooh. I don't know. That's hard. It's very different. Uh, it's very fun. Both are very fun, but animating is very comfortable for me. Like okay. <laughs> I really enjoy it. I know I can get to the result I want eventually. Like I used to have the stress when I was starting of like, I don't even know if I can do it. Like right. what, what the requirement is. And then after a few movies, you're like, get in a groove and you kind of understand there's a comfort zone that you get into that is like, I can produce the work. It just takes some time. Mm-hmm. And you never really get that much faster. You get, you get better. The, if the rigs get better, you'll get faster. I feel like animation and CG is all about like right now, like the more interactive it gets, the more productive people are going to be. But, um, directing is fun in a different way, but it's very much anxiety filled because it's all about like, it's all about like not knowing uh, what the story is or what it's going to be. It feels bad for a long time and it just doesn't, there's not a lot of satisfaction in the day to day of it. Um, it's a lot of like, why isn't this happening faster? <laughs> why are they waiting to like read that? Or like, um, so what you do is just make yourself really busy and let people take as much time as they want. Cause you're doing other stuff. Okay. And, uh, but you kind of have to because they, you know, when you turn in a script, it's like a month before they tell you anything. Like that's what it's supposed to be. So, um, you know, it's like that becomes like a little bit frustrating that waiting because I like things that happen right away. <laughs> and you don't want to commit all this love to like three projects in development and have to give them away because you know you one of them goes. Because I mean, that's the best possible solution is that one of them happens and you get to make a movie. Fantastic, but all the effort that goes into the other ones is gone because mm. you're not making those. Right, so right. especially in animation, when if you make a movie, it's at least three years. So 
<laughs> you say bye to all the other ones, you know, it's a different director. Yeah. Or they'd never make them because you were the reason they were making it. You know, maybe, I don't know. But I, but it's all, that's all like very, that's like a rich person problem. Cause like, you know, lucky you would be to ever make a film. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I do like it a lot. It's been a lot of fun, especially when it's been as free as the shorts have been. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people meddling with you. Um, you know, in making a TV show, there's a lot more. I've learned a lot of like, there's a lot more at stake. Um, and that becomes a lot more input. There's a different kind of stress there. And I'm, I didn't direct the pilot. I'm not directing the TV show. I'm just a producer on it, but, um, it's, it's, it's a different type of pressure and it's, it's weird. It's fascinating. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of executives in television too. So. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody has their input. <laughs> um, Last question. What's been one of your favorite shows to work on? That you- um, Surf's Up was amazing because it was like a revelation. It was like, this is possible. And then Tangled was amazing because uh, of John, Clay, and Glenn. Okay. Uh, just great leaders. Uh, when you work with people that inspire you, it's, it's wonderful, you know. And even on Surf's Up, it was Chris Buck and Ash Brandon, and they were pretty cool and inspirational at the time, too. Um, it was neat to work with directors like that with such pedigree. And, um, yeah, this has been, and obviously like making paper man and feast were both unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, that kind of thing is just, you, you just walk into it. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Like a couple times during the year, like you have the, that moment. <laughs> you have the, I had that moment when it started. And then also like when we got to that, like, get into the production and then when doing the score, you know, you kind of have these times during it that, um, cause it's like hundreds of people that orchestrate their life to make something for you. Mm-hmm. You don't want to disappoint anybody. <laughs> it's a very wonderful experience, the whole thing. And, uh, you try to take it in and, and, and be a pleasure to work with hopefully. Yeah. Like, you're like a tyrant because you work with a few projects and you realize that the problem with the project is that the leader is mean, you know? And, uh, how have you felt balancing that from your end, making sure that you're making a pleasant environment to work in, but yet leading? Yeah, you do what you can. I mean, you have to pick some things to be a little bit harsh about occasionally. And you try to let people, uh, you try to let artists do what they do best first and then nudge with some guidance. Um, if it's not going the way you thought it would and <clears throat> occasionally you have to be more drastic and say that person can't work on the show anymore, but that's not that often. Luckily, um, I don't like doing that kind of stuff. I like being, <laughs> I like being liked and pleasant and, uh, and I try to, I, I want everybody to think of the experience of working on one of my shows as one of the best things that they've had and not one of the worst. So, uh, that's all like taken into consideration in a way. The bigger it gets, the harder that is to kind of maintain, you know, on, on Feast, it was nice to be able to do, we had a pretty small crew all the time. We had every Friday, everybody had dinner. We had, we brought in food. Feast Fridays, it was one of the meals from the film. Uh, Christina Reed, wonderful producer, um, 
like made that happen. You know, made sure there was budget to feed everybody once a week together. Because um, that's all about like sitting down to eat with your loved ones. It's like a ritual that is interesting to me. It's like it's a ritual that's in religions. It's a ritual that's like still part of our days mm-hmm. and still like make time for that. And, yeah. Um, so to make a short about that, it feels like you should be doing that also with the crew. Yeah. Uh, whoever is on at the time, you know. And uh, I think those things are important and like little team building things. And that's hard to do with remote working for sure. Like I never met Ken until we showed it at Tribeca in New York and he came out, you know. So, um, you know, I don't love that part of it. Gotcha. That distant. But the, that's the visual effects and animation world right now, except for the few places like Pixar and Disney that are still like all in one spot. Right, right. There, are, there isn't a lot of that anymore, but I think it is nice to try for that sometimes. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Well, Patrick, I really, really appreciate the conversation. This has been awesome. It's uh, been like a walk through history of uh, your life and then some of these projects here, which many people I'm sure have really enjoyed. I'm pretty sure I said okay stuff about everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like I yeah. said, you've got a memory. Like that's that's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> It all is very linear. Like you work on, you generally work on one thing at a time. It's gonna be, it's gonna get harder now when there's like things layered over. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, I'll still have a career in a couple of years and can talk about them. That's right. Do you ever see yourself going back to Disney, or is that? Yeah, for sure. I would love to. I've, I've even thought about like, like, can I just come animate for three months? Is that cool? Yeah. Like, <laughs> just help with lunch, maybe. You know, yeah. but the problem is like you can. Um, there's rights issues with pitching original content elsewhere while you're working there. And, uh, you know, you kind of trapped in that way and that's, it makes sense. But, um, also sometimes the pressure of like having to pitch great ideas in order to have a job still is interesting. And like, um, maybe that put that pressure is good. I don't know. So yeah. I appreciate uh, you reaching out through Ken and um, always happy to talk. So I appreciate it very much. These are great movies that everybody's really loved and so it's nice okay. to talk about it. So yeah, I really yeah. appreciate it. Have a good one.